0: Everyone and welcome to New Books in History. I'm Christine Lamberson, an assistant professor of history at Angelo State University, and your host for today. Today, I'll be talking to Allison Perlman about her new book, Public Interests, Media Advocacy, and Struggles over U.S. Television, which just came out in 2016. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in History. I'm Christine Lamberson, an assistant professor of history at Angelo State University, and your host for today. Today, I'll be talking to Alison Perlman about her new book, Public Interests, Media Advocacy, and Struggles Over U.S. Television, which just came out in 2016 with Rutgers University Press. The book examines social reformers' efforts to shape broadcasting regulations and laws from the 1940s into the 2000s. And today, we'll be talking a little bit about why those reformers targeted broadcasting laws, and what they saw as a power of television to shape the nation's views. Allison is an associate professor of film and media studies and history at the University of California, Irvine. Welcome, Allison. Thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you so much for having me. So I thought we'd begin the interview by talking just a little bit about you and how you came uh, to be a scholar of media studies and to this project. So could you just tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. My PhD is actually in the field of American Studies, and when I first started graduate school, I knew I would do a project about media, but my assumption was I would be studying media and its representational practices. But over time, as I took classes and read more widely in the field of U.S. history and media studies, I got really interested not just in how does the media represent particular groups or communities, but also the laws and policies that structure the media industries themselves and the way that those industries can be exclusionary or inclusionary about the kinds of stories they tell, about the kinds of people who get to shape those stories, and about the messages of those media texts. And so while I started thinking I would be focused on representational practices, I landed focusing much more on media regulation and media law.
0: Okay. So this leads nicely into just kind of talking about what, who these reformers are and what they're interested in. And I thought just as an opening question to dive into that topic, you might talk a little bit about the title of your book, um, the idea of public interests, plural. Um, what's going on with that? Where, where did you come up with that and why is that important for your, your book's topic?
1: Well, the notion of the public interest is at the center of broadcasting policy. Um, it, the term originally uh, comes into being with public utility regulation in the 19th century, and Congress adopts it when it thinks through how to regulate radio and later television in the 20th century. And the basic premise of U.S. broadcasting policy is that the, pub- the airwaves are owned by the public. But a federal agency, first the Federal Radio Commission, later the Federal Communications Commission, would be empowered to license private entities to access this public resource. And in exchange for that privilege, this ability to use the public airwaves, these private licenses would be obligated to serve the public interest. Um, And so the study of broadcasting policy is really the study of evolving and competing understandings of what is this thing called the public interest. And I think most uh, people who study, Broadcasting policy would suggest that no one actually really knows what the public interest means. Um, it's been a term that has been contested pretty much since the Radio Act of 1927 when it was first applied to radio. And so, what I became really interested in were the multiple and competing ways that different communities, from federal agencies to federal courts to Congress, but also especially social movement organizations, tried to reimagine and reconfigure what was the public interest in order to reimagine what were the terms by which broadcasting policy should be enacted. Uh, and so the, one of the goals of terming uh, the public interest in its uh, plural form is to essentially signal that there is no singular, knowable, discoverable, unitary public interest, but that there had been multiple competing ideas about what is the public interest pretty much over the course of the history of radio and TV in the U.S.,
0: so could you talk a little bit about what was special and different about television, uh, as opposed to kind of previous forms, forms of media and your book? talks a little bit about how radio is somewhat similar to television, but your book, of course, is not about radio. But why are reformers in particularly looking to television as a place where they want to be part of the public, where they want to define the public interest as including their issues? Why is it that television is particularly important for their kind of social advocacy and to target their attention uh, towards?
1: Yeah, that's a really wonderful question. So I think part of the answer lies in just the tremendous power of TV itself. Um, So by the end of the 1950s, over 90% of American households have television sets. Uh, Into the 1960s, TV will be the primary source that most Americans turn to for information about news and current events. And I think to a lot of people, television became this really powerful locus of public culture, uh, the space that created shared narratives that informed the broader community about key issues of the day, and that in some ways represented the nation back to itself. And so for a number of the communities that I've studied, one of the things that they were really invested in is recognizing that if they were to be invisible on television, or if their perspectives were to be silenced within this public sphere, it would be really difficult to lay claim to Their own position as critical members of the larger community and to make broader claims about social equality or justice um, if the TV as a medium was entirely ignoring them and their claims or grievances. The other reason that I've always been really interested in television and broadcasting more broadly is that unlike other forms of entertainment or even news media, it's been regulated by the federal government. So um, if you wanted to start a newspaper, you not only wouldn't need a government license, but the First Amendment specifically prohibits the government from uh, requiring any kind of advanced license or permission to print a newspaper or a magazine. Similarly, motion pictures have never been regulated specifically by a federal agency. Um, What you needed to start a movie studio was just sufficient capital to create pictures, and then access to distributors and motion picture theaters. But since 1927, if you wanted to broadcast first over radio and later over TV, it required this government license, which means the state has always had a stake in determining the parameters of who could speak and what could be listened to first in radio and later on television. And I think this role of the state became incredibly important to a lot of social movements, who saw television not just as this neutral space that was governed by marketplace relations, but as a medium that has always historically been structured by government decisions.
0: You have a set of actors who are trying to gain access to, gain a voice in, gain some representation on television. And and your book sort of has if hopefully I'm characterizing this correctly, but sort of two major periods, you sort of have what's happening in earlier television history, and then we have a different type of activism or a different um, regulatory environment post-1980s as you have deregulation. Uh, So if we can start just kind of in that earlier battle, you have a go through a couple of different case studies, and you talk about uh, different sets of people, different uh, groups who are trying to gain access to the airwaves and, and gain representation there. And I thought that one way to kind of give people an idea of how uh, this advocacy works and a little bit of a, a taste of what your book's like, I thought maybe we would just talk about one of those groups. Sure. Uh, and really, I'm open to talking to uh, about any of them. You talk about uh, folks who are trying to get educational television Uh, space. uh, You talk a little bit about the Black Freedom Movement, and then you talk about uh, now the National Organization for Women. Uh, So I'm open to any of those. I don't know if one stands out to you as sort of a case study that is particularly uh, dear to your heart or that... Uh, you think makes for a particularly good representation. And I'm wondering if you could talk just a little bit about the way these communities organize themselves in order to try and advocate for space on television and advocate to shape the regulatory environment to include their voices.
1: Sure. Um, I think I will talk a little bit about the National Organization for Women. Um, That that was the first chapter I wrote, and in some ways it's I have a lot of affection for it. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, NOW was formed in 1966, and its original mission statement had six major goals that the organization was going to pursue. And one of them was changing representations of women in the media. And uh, early members of NOW had this very strong sense that many of their other goals, uh, employment opportunities, equal pay, um, the ability to enter into the professions, and so on, would be tremendously hampered if derogatory images of women continued to circulate in the media. Um, And so they had a number of campaigns that they leveled in order to transform how women were represented in advertising, in motion pictures, and um, on television. And so uh, the media advocacy that now did was just one prong of a much larger campaign to reimagine uh, how women could be depicted and especially to resist what it saw as these dual pernicious stereotypes of women, either women as only being capable of being housewives and mothers or women as profoundly uh, not very smart or not very capable, highly emotional, not really capable of holding down serious jobs. Um, And so serendipitously for now, At the the same year that the organization formed, there was a really important federal court case uh, about the broadcast license process. There had been civil rights activists in Jackson, Mississippi, from the early 1960s, who were really attentive to the way that questions of civil rights were being discussed on local television stations, uh, especially in Jackson, Mississippi. And so these civil rights activists started monitoring the station to see when civil rights came up how many different kinds of perspectives were presented to the local audience. Were white supremacists given a platform solely or were other groups and other perspective, perspectives allowed to weigh in on this question of civil rights? Uh, they also monitored how many people of color, especially African-Americans, were visible on local television programming. Jackson, Mississippi was 45% African-American, but uh, a very, very, very small percentage of people to appear on their local television station were African-American. And so in 1964, these civil rights activists filed a petition with the FCC to deny the license of their local TV station on public interest grounds. And essentially, they made the case that the station, which was obligated to serve the public interest, had failed because of these racially discriminatory practices. Initially, the FCC said to these civil rights activists, you don't have standing or a legal right to be heard in the license renewal process. Up until that point, even though the public interest had governed broadcasting policy, members of the public had virtually no opportunity to weigh in on whether or not their local station was deserving of renewal. The petitioners in this case decided to file an appeal. And in 1966, the same year that now was formed, a federal appellate court ruled that, in fact, members of the public Do you have legal standing to be able to challenge broadcast licenses if they can show that there have been public interest violations? So, one of the ways in which now tried to challenge how local television stations were depicting women, but also increasingly the degree to which local public television stations were employing women or how they were determining what were considered to be really critical issues for their local news programming to address was through a broadcast license. Renewal challenges. So, essentially, what this would mean in practice is every three years a television license would be up for renewal. And now, chapters would go to their local stations, they would peruse their employment records to figure out if women were employed in statistically significant ways, and especially if women were employed in meaningful or decision making positions. They would also do these monitoring studies, which I think are are quite amazing. They would sit down and watch a tremendous amount of television on a singular station, and they would have with them these enormous sheets of of paper, these charts that had very different categories of um, how many women are in particular shows, are women ever narrators of shows, do women ever get to make key decisions that affect a narrative, are women considered experts in news programming, and so on. And they would have stopwatches to actually time how much TV space women were allocated during local television uh, programming. They would take this research and they would make an assessment about whether or not the local station was in violation of any of the FCC's rules about equal employment opportunities, about um, whether or not the station was dedicating sufficient time to a discussion of controversial issues, and especially the degree to which the station's attitude towards women who now positioned as key members of the uh, viewing public, were being included within television broadcasts and the degree to which there was a diversity of views of women on air on a local station. Um, After they would go through this process, they would contact a station and let the station know, we're considering filing a challenge to your license renewal. Sometimes local stations would panic over this and say, why don't we sit down and try to come up with some sort of agreement about how we can change our practices when it comes to programming or employment so that you don't file a license. Other times the stations would not and now it would go forward and try to um, push the FCC's hand to revoke the license of a local broadcaster that in its view was not serving the public interest because of gender discriminatory practices. And so now it did this for about eight years. Um, they had chapters across the country There was a national reform task group that would send toolkits to local chapters to let them know this is how you monitor a station. These are key FCC policies that might be useful to you as you think about whether or not a local station is serving your needs as members of its community and would often update now members about shifts in broadcasting policy that could affect this broader project
0: of bringing feminist perspectives to
1: the airwaves.
0: So how successful are these women? You mentioned that some of the, the stations respond by making changes. Others don't make those changes and, and now does go ahead and, and bring those FCC challenges. How successful do you see this campaign as, as being in the end?
1: It's such a good question because on its surface, there, now is not really very successful at all. So there's not a single license that's revoked based on a now license challenge. Um, The first major stations that they go after are um, NBC's flagship station in D.C. and ABC's flagship station in New York. And this license challenge does not work. And both stations get their licenses renewed. But in a broader sense, I think the pressure that now brought to bear locally on a number of stations did, in fact, yield a number of concessions that were really meaningful for the organization such as commitments to hire more women, such as commitments to dedicate new specials to feminist issues that now deemed really critical to their larger political project. Um, In addition, though, the FCC never revoked a license based on a now challenge. You can tell by looking at some of their policy documents from the 1970s that this constant um, attention that now was paying to the ways that broadcasting policy and the way that it was implemented by local stations could be discriminatory towards women would later affect the way that the FCC imagines what its obligations is to the public. Um, So, for example, the FCC had a policy that it adopted in 1980. It would be revoked in 1982 called ascertainment. And what ascertainment meant was local stations had the obligations to go out and talk to members of their community to ascertain what are the core, important issues that really matter to their viewing public. Um, And they did this through all sorts of uh, strategies. They would interview community leaders. They would send out surveys. They would hold luncheons for key members of the community and so on. And one of the things that was really upsetting to now is that when a lot of stations engage in ascertainment, they never spoke to leaders of feminist organizations. And if they spoke to women, they were frequently women who were not sympathetic to or even cognizant of the feminist activity in their communities. And so in 1978, when the FCC revised its ascertainment policy, one of the things that it did was give instructions to local stations as to the kinds of community leaders that needed to be ascertained as part of this broader process. And inclusive in that group was women and feminist organizations so while now didn't really get any licenses revoked, what I think it did do is convey to both broadcasters and to their federal regulators that women constituted a class within the broader public that the way that broadcasting policy had been interpreted up to that point had not really considered women as this distinct group that deserved consideration as stations as, excuse me as stations were understanding what their public interest obligations were and that the commission itself had an obligation to think about broadcasting policy in a way that was inclusive of women's interests.
0: Okay. And one other thing that I was kind of curious about reading your book, your book is really about this, the interactions between the advocates and and the FCC and the, in the local stations and sort of in this um, negotiation policy reform um, arena. Uh, so, I of course am, am going to ask you a question about sort of what's on the edges of that. Uh-huh. Uh, if if you have any ideas, I was curious sort of how um, aware might be the word uh, other people perhaps in the community were. Was there any sort of broader response to this kind of effort? I'm to a certain extent answering this or asking this question as a precedence, thinking about how politicized the media is, is today, and kind of wondering if there's any sort of uh, broader response beyond the kind of the, the policy negotiation realm, so to speak. Yeah,
1: no. Um, so that's a, a great question. Um, certainly, there was a lot of community response, when these advocates were successful <laughs> or when they were challenging a station that was very near and dear to other members of the community. Um, so, for example, when um, the Jackson, Mississippi station that was the test case that reimagined who could participate in a license renewal process, ultimately that station had its license revoked. Um, and This created a tremendous amount of outrage amongst a lot of members of the white community of Jackson that one of their beloved stations had had been attacked by civil rights activists who, in their view, were making illegitimate claims of grievance. Um, This was also the case about 10 years later when a public television network in the state of Alabama, which had uh, eight television stations that were interconnected, that provided educational and public television to residents of Alabama was the subject of a license challenge. And uh, the petitioners in that case, much like what had happened in Jackson, Mississippi, claimed that this was a public television network in the state of Alabama licensed by the federal government that did not employ African-Americans, that very aggressively ignored any discussion of civil rights protest, uh, which seemed especially egregious in the state of Alabama at the time. Um, its commissioners never had an African-American um, as as a member of its body and so on. This was a case that lasted about six years. And in 1975, the FCC revoked the licenses of all eight stations in the Alabama television network. And this actually created a huge negative response by political leaders in Alabama, by residents of the state who were really wedded to the educational television network, who saw it as one of the crown jewels of the educational system in Alabama who thought that the claims made by the petitioners were outdated and um, were robbing the community of what had been a really valuable resource. And so much of the public response took place not so much alongside the activism as it unfolded, but was often in response to those rare moments of success when a particular expression of the public interest did not seem to coincide with how other members of the community understood both what the public interest was, but also the role of the local station to their community.
0: Okay. So things change a lot. Hopefully I'm again, characterizing this correctly, uh, but not too long after the now battle. So I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about what changes. I've already mentioned that a little bit in my earlier question, uh, but what changes in, in how the regulatory atmosphere um, creates a different set of circumstances for advocates after the 1980s.
1: Yeah, so from in some ways the 1940s to the 1970s, uh, we have this period where the Federal Communications Commission and to some degree Congress is really open to creating new policies to augment or further the public interest. And there are just a number where broadcasting stations are either required to do some things or not required to do other things in the imagined service of greater diversity of perspective on the air um, to better serve the local needs of communities or to create more competition. And the activists like NOW and NAACP and other groups who get involved in media advocacy in the 60s and 70s really benefit from these policies. They become these essential tools that they can use to persuade broadcasters to change their practices. frequently with the threat of a license renewal challenge. Beginning in the 1970s, there is a pretty substantial backlash, both amongst broadcasters, but also members of Congress, to this increased activism, especially targeting local broadcasting stations at renewal time. There's the sense that there's this enormous administrative burden on the FCC because now it has to not only renew licenses, but deal with all of these challenges that are being leveled against local stations. Um, And broadcasters themselves are very resentful at what they see as this new form of power and influence that local community groups have over the way that they conduct their business. And so in the 1970s, Congress starts flirting with this idea of broadcast deregulation, which essentially means to take all those policies that had been created from the 40s through the 70s and roll them back or dismantle them. Um, And with the basic assumption that One of the best ways to make sure that the public interest is met is to get government out of the way, let broadcasters do what they do best by trying to serve the broadest public possible. And that broadcast regulation was an impediment to the public interest being served rather than something that facilitated it. Um, None of these efforts towards deregulation are all that successful in the 1970s. But in 1980, when Ronald Reagan is elected, and when he's able to appoint a far more conservative FCC, these fantasies of deregulation become a reality. So beginning in the 1970s and really continuing to our contemporary moment, we see a a model of broadcast regulation that's best described by the chairman of the FCC who was appointed by Ronald Reagan in 1981, a man named Mark Fowler, as a marketplace approach to regulation. And what this essentially suggests is that the best way to serve the public interest is by removing unnecessary government regulations, um, presuming that the communication needs of the public are best served by a diverse, robust marketplace, unfettered by government intervention, and that consumers are best able to express what kind of broadcast media they want by voting with their eyeballs or their ears, by choosing the programming that is most valuable and important to them. And that this is the primary mechanism by which the public interest will make itself visible is through the consumer choices of viewers and listeners. And so beginning in the 1980s, a lot of the policies that had been used by activists in the sixties and seventies to challenge local broadcasters start, start getting repealed um, in the service of this marketplace approach to regulation. Mm
0: -hmm. And is the impetus for the shift to a marketplace, uh, approach to regulation coming out of sort of the general larger uh, shift towards um, more interest in marketplace approaches to a lot of things during this time period? Or do you see it as uh, a different kind of advocacy, a kind of advocacy that's pushing against the reformers who wanted a broader definition of public interest and a broader um, definition of the public?
1: Um, Well, I think it's probably a combination of the two. I mean, it's certainly consistent with broader shifts in public policy in the 1980s. Um, It's also uh, premised on the notion that new technologies have radically transformed the broadcasting landscape. Um, So as early as 1981, members of the FCC are pointing to the emergence of the video cassette recorder or the VCR and cable television as these competing uses of your television set that are diversifying the perspectives that individual consumers can access when they're watching TV. And given this plethora of new media technologies, these old ideas about how we ought to regulate broadcasting are becoming outmoded. And so rather than cling to these old ideas, we should embrace this new model that takes stock of the diversity of the media landscape, um, which is an argument that only continues to accelerate as cable expands and as um, sources for a video-based narrative continue to enlarge and get greater and greater. Um, and, then, and then I do think that it, by the 1970s, there was such hostility to the level of activity around broadcast license renewal and the agency that a lot of social movement organizations felt in participating in broadcast policymaking that were repealing a number of the key policies that they were using as the basis for their reform activism, certainly informed the real desire to reimagine what broadcast regulation would be to diminish the role of public in participating in those processes.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. So in this new landscape, uh, I was thinking we might do something similar to what we we talked about with the the former um, regulatory environment. And just talk about one of the groups that you talked about. And so... You talk a little bit about African-Americans, you talk about uh, conservative family groups, and then you also talk about Latinos and their um, efforts to uh, have a greater um, voice on television. And so here again, I was wondering if you could talk about one of those and how they continue to try and reform uh, public broadcasting or broadcasting and their uh, position and voice on it despite this new landscape.
1: Sure. Yeah. So I think that in a lot of histories of media activism, the 80s and 90s are imagined as this really dark period where deregulation takes place and everybody is so demoralized that the ferment of the 60s and 70s really dies down. And to some degree, if you're looking, especially at licensed renewal activity, that's 100% true. But there certainly are organizations like the NAACP who are taking stock of this new environment. And they're taking stock more broadly of the political and cultural changes of the 1980s. And they see that they actually have to be increasingly vigilant about thinking about how broadcasting policy affects their broader project of pursuing racial justice and civil rights. And so what the NAACP ends up doing throughout the 80s and 90s is in some ways, and this is true of so many groups, is somewhat reactive. So they see their goal not so much as prescribing new modes for interpreting the public interest or prescribing new policies that would facilitate a media system that was more just and more inclusive of a racially diverse public, but really as uh, a time where they had to continue to reassert that the very premises of these policies that are up on the chopping block during a period of deregulation serve tremendous public interest goals, especially goals that affect the capacity of African-Americans to be visible in the media, to participate in constructing the narratives that determine how they're seen and how their uh, rights or lack of rights are interpreted by a broader public. So much of what the NAACP will start to do in the 80s and 90s is just a, a lot of monitoring of how the FCC is behaving to make sure that it's enforcing the policies that are still on their books to enhance racial diversity, um, both on the air, but also in broadcast station ownership. They file a tremendous number of legal briefs that reassert the necessity of a number of policies that had been devised in the sixties and seventies to address the tremendous paucity of uh, people of color in both employment positions, but also in ownership positions of broadcasting stations. So, for example, in 1978, um, less than 1% of all broadcasting stations are owned by a person of color in the U.S. Um, the FCC recognizes this as a problem and creates a, about three different policies to try to bring more people of color into ownership positions of local broadcast stations. A lot of what the NAACP does in the 1980s is try to strenuously make the case that those policies are still really necessary. Um, and part of the project of doing that is both appealing to existing ideas about the public interest and the way that it's been interpreted in media policy and law, but also resisting uh, a concurrent discourse that takes place alongside of this embrace of deregulation, which is this notion that the 60s and 70s were a period in which the civil rights movement tried valiantly and successfully to address racial discrimination in the United States, and it had been really successful, such that any kind of race conscious policy, especially as it relates to media, is no longer necessary. And so as we go about deregulating broadcasting, part of that process is also from the perspective of um, the FCC at the time, and also a number of the federal courts, any kind of policy that was devised during this ferment of the 60s and 70s, specifically that acknowledged that racial discrimination had impeded the opportunities of African-Americans to participate in broadcasting, those policies are outdated too, and we ought to revoke them. So the NAACP is kind of fighting on two fronts. They're trying to suggest that regulation still matters, but they're also trying to resist this narrative that racial discrimination is a thing of the past and race-conscious policies are no longer necessary to redress some of the discriminatory practices of the past. Mm -hmm.
0: So they're really fitting into these other battles or, or paralleling other battles about affirmative action and, and all of that type of thing as well.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and affirmative action law becomes uh, a, a, a problem <laughs> for the NAACP. I mean, throughout the 80s, there are a number of Supreme Court cases that are increasingly chiseling away at the legality of affirmative action programs. And then these decisions become the legal foundation for a lot of the FCC's decisions to start Repealing a number of their policies that were specifically oriented towards expanding racial diversity on the airwaves,
0: mm-hmm. and so how successful are they?
1: Uh, they have a couple of victories, <laughs> but mm-hmm. by and large, um, uh, the hi- history is not on their side. Um, so the one of the biggest victories that they have is the 1990 Supreme Court case, uh, the Metro decision, which specifically is ruling on the constitutionality of ownership policies oriented towards bringing more people of color into ownership positions. And um, Metro is, is pretty important because unlike so many of the affirmative action policy, uh, court decisions, excuse me, of the 1980s, the Supreme Court actually affirms the constitutionality of FCC rules oriented towards bringing more people of color into ownership positions for broadcasting stations. And the NAACP had been fairly involved in writing amicus briefs and trying to assure that these policies were affirmed by the court. And so that's really their, that that was a a victory for them. But um, they have more defeats during this period than they do successes.
0: So one of the things you say in your in your book is that despite uh, these defeats, and, and you mentioned it earlier uh, today as well, is that you really don't want to tell a story that's simply one of a declension story in the face of deregulation and neoliberalism and these shifts. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about sort of how you see uh, this historical moment as an important story that isn't simply one of, of declension and defeat.
1: Yeah, no, that's such a great question, because there are definitely moments <laughs> where <laughs> it feels like every story has an unhappy ending. Um, I mean, I think part of why I wanted to write this book um, was to move away from a success-failure binary and instead think through about the his- historical significance of these struggles. Um, and so part of the goal of the book is to show my colleagues who study 20th century U.S. history that media and especially media policy was a really important terrain of conflict and struggle. Um, I I think that as historians, we see the critical importance of education policy to 20th century social movements or housing policy, Um, but media policy has been somewhat invisible. And so I was hoping to illuminate by sort of writing these various case studies that all of the major social movements of the second half of the 20th century believed that you had to reform media policy to reform the media, to reform the nation. And so whether or not they always were able to achieve their explicit aims, the very struggle itself, I think, is really important to recognize and to continue to see how media policy isn't just about regulating media industries. It's not just about technocratic concerns, but it's fundamentally, uh, fundamentally it intersects with key issues about gender equality, racial justice, um, and so on. Um, but the other side of the sort of avoidance of a success failure binary is that at many of the activists themselves didn't presume that the specific goal of a specific campaign would be successful but they understood what they were doing as important nonetheless. So if you are engaged in a local media activist effort, part of what you're doing is signaling to regulators, but also local broadcast stations, we're a community that's watching you, that is attentive to who you're hiring and what you're putting on the air. And we have a stake in this community and we will try to hold you responsible to being the best steward of the public airwaves as possible. Um, you also gain a lot of credibility with sort of federal stakeholders, the FCC and Congress in particular, once you've gained a number of, uh, a, s- a certain amount of experience engaging in media activist campaigns, that then provides you a voice in, for example, hearings to consider the creation of new or the rescinding of existing media policies. And so even if you haven't successfully challenged a, a broadcast license, as now chapters never really successfully did When Congress held hearings on deregulation in the 1970s, members of NOW were continually testifying because they had credibility as legitimate stakeholders to determine what is the public interest and how should broadcasting policy be designed in the future. And then there are a number of attorneys who work with uh, media activist campaigns who will say that a lot of what you're doing when you are filing a brief or filing a petition is you are introducing legal language and legal concepts that then can, uh, there are seeds that can sprout later as a particular docket unfolds or a particular issue unfolds that they can be useful to to your own uh, efforts, but also to other groups in the future who are looking to pursue a particular policy outcome. And so in some ways, their media activism is often structured around a particular campaign, but its, its impact is, takes place over a much greater duration than just the duration of the
0: campaign itself. Yeah. I think that's a really great insight of how important just the, the fight is, so to speak and sort of broadening, broadening who's participating in that conversation. And I was curious also, again, kind of thinking about um, the conclusion of your book and, and you go up until, you know, the early 2000s so you're getting pretty close to the present. And I was curious how you see, um, I guess, one of two things: either how you see things changing in a more present media landscape, one that has a rapidly changing um, landscape of just how people watch TV, of of how information um, gets out of you know the internet and all those kinds of things, and current battles. Are, are very public about things like net neutrality, which, of course, are a little bit uh, different. Um, so either how you see those things changing or if, if you're more comfortable as a historian thinking about how this history is important uh, for people who are thinking about and learning about and, and just watching the news about current battles over um, broadcasting and the FCC and, and these kinds of media questions.
1: Yeah, that's those are both great questions. Um, I mean, there was a way when I was working on this project where I knew that my topic was becoming increasingly anachronistic with every passing day, <laughs> um, just because the the media universe of the '40s, '50s, '60s, '70s even could not be more different than today, and I think. Making the claim circa 1975 that television, broadcast television, is the locus of a shared public culture was not very controversial in a way that it's fairly untenable right now. And um, which doesn't mean that there aren't communities who are still very invested in broadcasting policy and uh, the local practices of broadcasting stations. There are, and, and it's still Uh, local radio in particular is still so crucial to so many communities as a site of current events, but also as a space of publicity for local groups. And so I don't want to diminish the role of broadcasting, but I do think it's important, as you suggest, to recognize that the media landscape has changed so dramatically. And so the notion that there are a scarce number of broadcasting stations that determine the parameters of what we learn about the world no longer really seems all that salient in an environment of the internet and blogs and Netflix and Amazon and cable and all of this, it's just, it's a totally different media environment. Um, But I do think that there are key lessons to learn from the history of struggles over broadcasting policy for even contemporary struggles over issues like net neutrality. Um, One of the, the, one of the goals of, of the book for me, at least was to make visible just the diversity of groups who saw media policy is really important, um, and to map how they had often sympathetic but often distinct stakes, and how they understood why challenging existing policies or by advocating for new policies was really important. Um, I think there's often, at least in the in certain media reform communities, this assumption that anti corporate crusaders are at the fore of struggling for a more democratic media. And they will try to bring into the fold of these movements civil rights organizations and other groups who otherwise would be disinterested in pursuing media policy reform. And so one of the things that was really important for me to show in public interest is that these communities have been engaged in media reform activism for a really long time. And that their primary goal often has not been to uh, challenge the commercial underpinnings of the media, or to challenge commercial hegemony, although a lot of groups saw this as quite important, but it was also for them the key was to think about how does media and media policy perpetuate racial discrimination or gender discrimination, and so I and I and I am a true believer that questions over issues like net neutrality are both about speech rights issues and the degree to which we're going to have an internet that functions closer to a democratic public sphere than one that functions as this uh, siloed environment in which wealthy companies have access to faster speeds and thus curtail what kinds of perspectives we're able to access. Like this, Certainly it is this uh, critical First Amendment issue. But for a lot of groups, this is an issue that's deeply intertwined with questions about racial justice, and gender equality. And so as we move forward thinking about what are the key policy issues that face us as we're navigating this media environment, I would hope that my history would allow people to look at not just what are the core, almost value-neutral First Amendment concerns, but also how do these issues intersect with other forms of oppression and discrimination.
0: One other question that I was thinking about as you're talking um, to kind of uh, possibly backtrack a little bit, but well, one thing I'm struck by, especially when we're talking about the the present day, is that in some ways, uh, in terms of public discourse, you actually s- still hear a lot of people who feel like the um, the media, as as its office termed, and to refer to both television and other aspects, as being biased. Right, it's right. The most common common term these days, and currently, typically, or most commonly, uh, those claims are coming from a conservative perspective. Right. And in your book, you certainly very explicitly talk about how media advocacy is something that happens on the, both the right and the left. Right. Uh, and since you take a case study approach, you sort of move back and forth between those. And I was wondering if you see there as being sort of a, a a tendency for one side or the other to be doing more advocacy at a particular time? Or mm-hmm. do you see sort of um, groups just on all sides being involved in advocacy th- throughout this history? Does that make sense as a question?
1: No, it absolutely does. So I, the, the tendency when focusing on media activism has often been to focus on progressive groups. And I think part of that is many of the people who study activism, and I would include myself in this, probably much more politically sympathetic to uh, groups who are concerned about the way that commercialism will affect the public sphere or concerned about questions of uh, racial justice and gender equality. But from my read, uh, conservative media activism has existed concurrently with this form of progressive media activism. Um, So my book really targets uh, the Parents Television Council in the 1990s as sort of my emblematic group of conservative media activists, but um, certainly conservatives have been making the claim about liberal media bias since the 1950s, although it accelerates in the 1960s. Um, There have been organizations like Accuracy in Media, which formed in 1969, that used tactics to try to address what it saw as a liberal media bias that were remarkably similar to what NOW is doing to address what it saw as gender discrimination in the media, Um, I think probably the the key difference that happens really in in the 80s and 90s, although probably sort of accelerates in the 1990s, is that you have these critiques of the media coming from very different political perspectives. But for many uh, conservative groups in the 60s and 70s, they see media reform and using the tools of media policy as a legitimate way to address their concerns over liberal media bias. Beginning in the 80s and 90s, with the exception of the question of broadcast indecency, a lot of conservative media activism has focused less on uh, a a much more aggressive form of regulation to counter ideological bias and more towards uh, what I think we can think of as facilitating a public discourse around claims of liberal media bias. That is, they Mm -hmm. are really good at framing the media through a conservative lens and persuading people that the core problem with the media is this ideological imbalance, but they're not looking for a more robust uh, regulatory apparatus to require broadcasters or cable newscasters to be more balanced in their programming as much as they're trying to create pu- a public perception mm-hmm. that uh, this liberal bias is a core is a failure of the public sphere. I see.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's a, yeah, that's a really important distinction.
1: Yeah. I mean, and a lot of it is just also tethered to um, sort of like a, a conservative hostility to the expansion of the state, right. You know, and mm-hmm. a belief in free markets. And so it, it becomes a sort of conundrum for conservatives because they see the media industries as liberal, but they're often hesitant to impose regulations on industry because it's inconsistent with their view about the proper role of the state.
0: This has been a fascinating conversation. And I, I could talk longer uh, with you about your book, but we've taken up a lot of your time. So before we go, I was wondering if you might tell us a little bit about what you're working on now. Yes, um, I'm sort of at the early stages of a
1: couple of projects, one of which is um, a continuation of what I wrote about in public interest, and one is totally different. Um, so I got really interested when I was working on this book in the history of public television before the creation of PBS in 1969. The first chapter of the book looks at the efforts of educators to try to create a space for non-commercial television in the early 1950s. But I just had the sense that we don't really know much about what was public television doing before the passage of the Public Broadcasting Act and the creation of PBS. And so I am at the early stages of a project just trying to write that history, what did public television look like before federal funding. Um, and then the second project I'm working on is just a, a short book that's totally different um, called History TV, which is it's a book about how television represents history um, by looking at different modes of television in different historical periods.
0: Okay. both well, of those sound great. I hope we can have you back on. That would be great. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for your wonderful questions.